of Talking Movies with Sam and Raj. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rod Sani. And I'm your other co-host, Sam. Thank you for joining us. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, what we do here, we'll open each and every episode discussing some movie and TV news. Uh, then we'll discuss what we've been watching throughout the week, and this will give us a chance to review some new releases as well. And then we'll close out each and every episode with a featured discussion. Um, on this week's episode, Sam is going to be guiding us on a discussion about horror films. Um, quick programming note, Sam and I are thinking of trying something new, at least for this upcoming week and hopefully for weeks to continue depending on how sort of the li- listenership goes. Um, but we're going to be trying to do news episodes on a semi-daily basis. Um, it'll probably be close to around the time when most big news stories are announced. But what we'll do is we'll hop on um, on those days where there are big news stories. We'll record so we can have our immediate reactions up there. These episodes will probably range somewhere to five to ten minutes. And then we'll save sort of the feature discussion and any other additional reviews for the weekend episode. So just keep an eye out for that. And um, we'll see how it works. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't feel like it's working, and then we'll go back to the normal format, but we're hoping this new cool idea might be the way we'll be doing the show going forward. Um, it's my idea. It's my idea, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so so if it, if it doesn't work out, you know who to attack. Um, <laughs> um, so let's get into the news, though, and we're going to start with some pretty big stuff here up top. Um, Michael Keaton is returning to play Batman slash Bruce Wayne. Um, this comes via the rap they announced that he's going to be uh, donning the cape and cowl once again um, in the new Flash movie. Um, this is because the Flash sort of is going to be introducing the concept of the Flashpoint in the multiverse in the DC sort of uh, oeuvre. This is a pretty popular concept. Um, it opens the door for you know different characters from different DC universes to step in and out of worlds. Um, I know in the, in the comic book line, like um, it's actually not Bruce Wayne that becomes Batman. He he is actually killed in the alleyway, and his father becomes Batman, and his mother becomes a Joker. So there's a lot of cool. stuff stuff going on with the Flashpoint story, but this is opening the door then for Michael Keaton, who obviously portrayed um, the the iconic character in 1989 and 1992 to step back into the role that basically made him... um, as famous as he is today, he was already famous before, but more for like comedies and stuff like that. And this was a sort of new adventure for Michael Keaton to take back in the late 80s and early 90s. So he's going to be stepping back into that role. And um, THR added to the report that Keaton could actually show up in several DC projects, kind of playing a Nick Fury type character, um, where he's going to be sort of the um, the leader and sort of guiding these other uh, superheroes to to some interesting path that we don't actually know a whole lot about yet. But I guess I'll, I'll start by asking you, Sam, um, do you have any affinity for Michael Michael Keaton's Batman, and if so, does this excite you or does it make you nervous? Well, there's a lot to unpack with this one just to begin with because I haven't seen the Tim Burton movies with Michael Keaton, but I'm aware of his sort of stature as the Batman character. A lot of people like him as Batman, but with this with this news announcement, a lot of people were like, hmm, I don't know, or I'm not sure, but I think this is a really interesting way of trying to introduce other characters from other shows and or other movies and other franchises from like the past into like the new DC extended universe. But with like the Flashpoint, I was I was I was going to ask you, I don't know if you're if you know this, but he's going to play actually bruce wayne like actual batman is going to play like an older bruce wayne like we saw in uh, batman beyond older i believe it's going to be older so then maybe we could be introduced to batman beyond in this because if he's an older one he he doesn't really don the cape and cowl because he's like you know too too advanced in his ears to um try and fight crime like he did in the past but uh i, I think i gotta have to watch the uh the tim burton movies at some point because i think this is a really interesting way of introducing michael keaton into the fold and just trying to people just trying to get people desensitized to the tim burton ones if they haven't seen it with the uh, jack nicholson playing the joker and all that Yes. Yeah, so, so the thing about him donning the cape, uh, cape and cowl, like 
that was something I think these are these initial reports stated that he's going to be coming back as Bruce Wayne. And I think a lot of people speculated similar to what you're talking about with Batman Beyond him, maybe not actually being Batman, but being solely Bruce Wayne. And then there were a couple follow ups. And I don't know actually if they were rumors, but they seem like they were pretty legit that he is going to at some point be in the outfit. Um, So I think that's something that we can't anticipate to see so, whether or not, you know, he'll be in battle. I think that's a different conversation. Um, or it could be a maybe a mix of the Batman Beyond character and the Frank Miller Dark Knight comics. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking it's going to be um and, and i don't even know how loyal it's going to stay to batman's comics i think it's you know it's not even you know as we just discussed flashpoint opened the door for where or sorry flashpoint in in the comic book line bruce wayne was dead in, in that storyline so it's not really staying true to the comic storyline it's more using a concept from the comics to open up and expand the dc universe um and you know this is already something that they've sort of explored a little bit already because i think ezra miller already showed up on like the tv show the flash when they did the multiverse thing there recently really? um, so it's something that they've already planted the seeds for um i guess for me personally i'm i'm not a big fan actually of the tim burton batman movies um i think mm. you and i both we cut our teeth on, on the christopher nolan stuff and right. when you jump back to the tim burton stuff it, it's it just doesn't hit the same way it's kind of goofy um it's a little weird and it, you know it, it does have a bit of that dark tone that christopher nolan's had but it was a lot more um it was a lot more quirky i think than what we're used to and i know certain batman comics are like that but the batman comics that i've always gravitated towards were the ones that were far more darker and i think that's why i like christopher nolan's versions of the character so much um so you know i i do like michael keaton a lot as an actor not even so much as Batman, but especially like in these most recent years with like Birdman and Spotlight in particular, two movies that he was Oscar nominated for. I've loved him in both of those movies. So, so I guess I'm cautiously optimistic, um, but I guess I'm most concerned just because DC has already shown us that they don't necessarily have the best grasp on okay. doing these things. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I was kind of talking to other friends on Twitter recently. I was saying that I was, you know, how like the Flashpoint is kind of like a reset button for the DC comic books. I was thinking, considering how the trajectory of the DCEU has gone thus far, they might use Flashpoint as a reset button for the actual universe itself so they can get like a fresh start in regards to like the stories that they already put out and like trying to make a sort of a redo for the stories that they want to go f forward with because of the sort of reception with the other movies thus far but um i'm actually really surprised that we're even getting anything from the flash at this point because you know it's been development hell for like the past five years now because they've been like shuffling with directors writers i'm surprised that ezra miller is still attached to being the flash <laughs> so I'm after he attacked pretty, a lady right exactly so i'm just actually pretty surprised that we are getting anything even something as substantial as Michael Keaton coming back as Bruce Wayne. So I'm really glad that this is getting traction because I like Ezra Miller as a flash. Yeah, I liked him as Flash, too, and I guess I think probably what's backing this up more than anything is Andy Muschietti is on as director, and, you know, he's got goodwill over at Warner Brothers because he made so much money with the two It films. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that, like, he's sort of the, the guy that they're sticking firm with, and I think that he's actually he's actually been developing this for quite a bit of time, and the reports are stating that they're set, um, they're getting set to film in quarter one of 2021. So in early next year, once all the coronavirus stuff is hopefully settled, they will be getting to shooting. So this, you know, this is coming. It's, it's coming and it's, I'm interested to see what other things they try to do with the multiverse. And I'm sure we'll get some reports on that. Um, So we'll, we'll keep you all updated on that here. Let's on hope podcast. it goes better than it chapter two. Yeah, let's hope so. And again, <laughs> like I said, like DC has shown us, has not shown us that they can properly grasp and start different universes. So while I agree with you that it could be a reset button, that doesn't 
doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good thing. You know, they'll use it to usher out Ben Affleck and whatnot, and they'll open that door. Um, but, you know, it could get really sloppy really quickly, and we'll just have to keep an eye on that. Um, mm-hmm. Let's get into the other news story that we have set for this week. Uh, Margot Robbie, pretty interesting news about her. She's reteaming with her Birds of Prey writer, Christina Hodson, for a new female-fronted Pirates of the Caribbean film. Um, we got an announcement pretty recently that there was another Pirates of the Caribbean film um, being written by Ted Elliott as well as Craig Mazin from Chernobyl. Um, but this is going to be its whole, like a wholly original separate story from the Craig Mazin one. Um, so so I guess I'll ask you first. Uh, I'm guessing that you're on a similar page with most movie fans and that you're probably not the biggest Pirates fan, correct? Not really, because I only like the first one and beyond that I, they're complete blurs to me. Does a revamp of the franchise? Then let, let's let's stay away from the Craig Mazin stuff. We'll get we'll talk about that once we have more uh, news on it. But with Margot Robbie reteaming with Christina Hodson, does that sort of revamp make you more interested in this? More because of Margot Robbie rather than Christina Hudson, because I Birds of Prey was pretty forgettable for me. I actually forgot that it was a movie that came out this year. But I think Margot Robbie has the talent to bring, you know, a new angle or new perspective for the Pirates movies. I'm really hoping so because we talked about this like maybe a couple months ago. We were like in awe of how much they spend on these movies. They spend like 150, 170, 200, 220 million dollars on the Pirates movies with the one starring Johnny Depp. And you know, if they if Margot Robbie gets that sort of budget for this pirates movie then i think i'll be more optimistic going forward with this but you know the pirates movies as a whole aren't really movies that i look forward to because just because of how bad they've been most recently it sounds like we're on a pretty similar page then because i agree with you i I like christina hodson like you know she did bumblebee and then margot robbie is obviously one of the most talented actors working today um but you know not all her projects are wins and speaking of birds of prey that was last saw it but um i'm not quite as high on it now as i was then and and a lot of our margot robbie's stuff while she has done oscar caliber work with stuff like bombshell i tanya wolf of wall street um she's also got some duds in her filmography with suicide squad and focus and um terminal and she she's Mm. not always the most consistent in terms of the projects that she picks and while she is the best part of most of those projects those movies don't always turn out great so i guess i'm a bit hesitant for this and i think i've given the pirates franchise a little bit more slack than most people um i love 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 the first one i think it's incredible and i actually enjoy the third one just for sort of the spectacle alone the rest of them i'm i'm pretty pretty poor on i don't like them all that much but um i think it's a good idea to give this a new face not even because of like johnny depp's controversies and whatever um i just think that it needs a fresh take and i'm hoping that margot robbie you know i i would assume that maybe she would even come onto this project as a producer i'm hoping her reteaming with somebody that she's comfortable with as a writer would send this in the right direction do you think maybe that they're going to pick another uh female director for this one because he's a female-led it has margot robbie starring and christina hudson uh writing the movie you think they're going to go with a female director do you think they might tap gore verbinski to come back into the fold I would like to see Gore Verbinski come back just because he does have a certain understanding of this franchise. That said, I'd rather see a female director take this on, especially if it's going to be female-fronted cast and a female mm. writer. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm having trouble thinking even off the top of my head who would I, who would I want to um, in there. Like, maybe even somebody who we haven't quite seen do a lot of bigger projects. Um, I, I don't necessarily, you know, like, I don't necessarily need to see Patty Jenkins come and do this, or I don't right. need to see um, Kathy Ann, who did Birds of Prey, come and do this. I, I want to get some fresh blood in there because it's giving more because some of these female directors have already had the opportunities to do their big budget films i want to give some of these other female directors who have been doing indie work to come into the big budget franchise and make their stamp and make their name known across 
across um across the world because i think that that's what a lot of these female like you know somebody who doesn't really have a big project under her belt yet is lulu wong um mm. who i'd love to see handle something like just because the farewell is great and i don't know if she's the best fit for this but like give give one of these new um newer filmmakers who are cutting their teeth in the indie world the chance to show themselves on a, on a big budget uh platform yeah, I was going to agree with you with that, because I can't think of anybody off the top of my head, and I was going to say Ava DuVernay just give her a second chance with a big-budget movie, considering how poorly uh, A Wrinkle in Time was received, just to give her another chance and kind of uh, in the big-budget world. But I think that either maybe Lulu Wong, as you said, or somebody new from the indie world, just to have them, you know, have, them, have a much more fresh take on the Pirates movies. Exactly. I think that's what this franchise needs. So let's hope that that's the case. And we'll, we'll report on this as well as we get more details because both of these projects are pretty still in early stages. Um, let's jump into rapid fire real quick. Um, Elizabeth Banks is going to play Miss Frizzle in a live ad- action adaptation of The Magic School Bus. Uh, Netflix has released the first images from Enola Holmes. Barry Jenkins is teaming up with Leo DiCaprio um, to write a feature adaptation of the documentary Virunga. Um, I think that was Oscar nominated as well. Um, Top Gun Mavericks director Joseph Kaz- is going to helm a Twister reboot and a couple delayed release dates. A Tenet has been pushed again August 12th, um, Mulan August 21st, and M. Night Shyamalan's movie, which was slated for February of next year, is being pushed to the end of July of next year. Um, anything here that you want to touch on, Sam? Well, the one that stuck out to me most this week was the Barry Jenkins story because as I, I, I went on his IMDb page, and I think he has a couple of shorts that he wrote for that he didn't direct, but all of his features thus far have been him writing and directing them. So this one kind of interests me because he isn't attached as a director, only as a writer, and we have Leo as a producer. So I'm really interested interested to see who they pick up as a director because I'm not pretty pretty aware with the, the documentary of Arunga, but you know, having Jenkins and Leo attached to it makes me think about the possible um scenarios of how this movie could come about is there anybody that you have at the top of mind since you're not all that familiar with the doc no that's why i don't have any at the top of my head because i don't know what the doc is about so okay but it just interests me because barry is uh, only writing and not directing yeah i'm not too familiar with the documentary either so i couldn't pin it pin down anybody to direct this um i would be interested to see if barry does decide to direct this moving forward um you know maybe he just signed on as a writer right now and maybe he changes uh changes when later on in the process but um hopefully that's that's another one that i'm interested to see because it feels like you know with leo producing and barry writing it feels like it has the potential to be an oscar contender already since the documentary got so much acclaim as is so uh, that's something I'm definitely going to have my eyes on to see who they cast and who they bring on as a director as well. Well, there is um, it's, it is a streaming on Netflix right now, so might just pop off the podcast after this and just watch it just to see what it's about. Sure, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit more next week. Um, and I believe this one is also going to be on Netflix as well. So we'll, um, uh, Netflix information comes pretty fast, so I would I wouldn't be surprised if we got a director announcement on this sooner rather than later. Um, okay. But let's go ahead and get into reviews now. And what what did you want to talk about? What did you get to watch this week? Well, I got to watch one movie. I finished a couple of comic books and I finished one TV show. So I'll start with the comics. I actually got a chance to um, read the attached or the extended uh, comics that are attached to the Avatar, the last Airbender show. So, um, you know, good, good short stories are very funny. You know, great tie-ins. Um, there's still the same sort of, same, same sort of tone and same dynamics that we, we uh, are accustomed to from the show. So if you are a fan of the show and you want more of the show um, outside of core and outside of avatar, you could, you should probably look into getting the comic books, but the one I would recommend the most being the art book it kind of uh, details the making of the show and like the sort of uh, team that they attach themselves to and the individuals that are most responsible for creating the world that we're also um, attached to. So 
go ahead and go go look out for that. You know, they're all on whatever comic book website or whatever um, store you want to go into that sells comics. I think they should be available there. Uh, I got a chance to finish Peaky Blinders, uh, I think five seasons thus far. I think it's a bit overrated. I know a lot of people like the show, but I think that they kind of crippled themselves by by being period accurate and it kind of loses the narrative cohesiveness of between each season i think my favorite season thus far is maybe season three i think tom hardy being the character alfie solomon's in the show is probably my favorite part of the show but i'm not really looking forward to the sixth season i just wanted to see what it was about because so many people that i know talk about it but you know wasn't really my cup of tea um and then the movie i saw this week was let the right one in uh i think it's probably my favorite vampire movie i've seen in my life but i haven't seen that many considering you know there aren't that much to look out for but you know it's a very moody it's very intimate i think it's a great way of showing um having you know the, the kid actors in this movie are really really good um it's very um i think it, to me it seemed it was like a small budget but i didn't really look into it um it's uh you know but it's very well made it's a kind of a bit of a slow burn um i think the hoi van hoitema was the one who scored this movie and uh, he did a great job with it and I, you know i think uh well concerning the fact that the horror discussion this week i i wanted to watch a horror movie this is a movie i've been trying to t- telling Raj i've been uh going to talk about for like the longest time now and i finally got a chance to watch it last night and I'm, i really enjoyed it uh, I want to hone in on Peaky Blinders, actually, because you're like the first person that I haven't heard rave about it. Is is mm. there anything like really in particular that jumped out of you as the reason why it just like felt overhyped? Um, I don't know. I think maybe there's certain artistic uh, liberties that they took with the show. Like there's a lot of like slow-mo coupled with like... Uh, uh, how do you say like pop rock pop rock of, of of England and it just kind of doesn't mesh well with the show considering it's a period piece based in the 1920s I kind of felt those sort of artistic integrities that they took were kind of cringy um, I think the season one is pretty poor because they're trying to focus a lot on like the political aspects of England at the time like with the communists and like the war and um, you know people coming back from war with PTSD and then having these gang members trying to establish themselves as legitimate business owners I don't know it kind of felt it's not a bad show i i I enjoyed it for what it was but in regards to how people talk about it i'm not at the same level as they are okay well this is one that i've like people have been telling me to watch for years so i'll I'll hopefully be able to chime in sooner rather than later but yeah i just keep pushing it off and your (laughs) your your less than stellar review makes me want to hold off on it more because there's just so many other things that i want to watch um so it probably won't be soon um but hopefully i will get to review this one eventually um got to rewatch a couple of things this week and i'll start with when harry met sally um i think i've talked about this before and, and it should come as no surprise this is still like you know my top 25 movies of all time i think um it's now on hbo max so it's pretty easy to access um i mean meg ryan and billy crystal are just at the top of their game here nor efron's script is brilliant uh, it's it's like it's the epitome of a perfect rom-com i think it doesn't get better than this when it comes to romantic comedies and that's a genre that i i feel pretty well versed in so i feel comfortable saying that um it, it really just doesn't get better than this i i love this movie so much and it if anything it only got better on this rewatch this is only the second time i saw it too so, so oh wow yeah yeah this is one because i had only seen it for the first time like maybe three years ago so you know it hasn't been that long between when i first saw and when i saw it now um and and you know i I actually i remember pretty clearly i went and watched this one after watching the big sick because i was like okay the big sick is probably my favorite romantic comedy that i've ever seen but let me go and revisit this classic to see if that might surpass it and you know this this movie i mean it's just incredible i have you have you seen it yeah i saw it at the alamo draft house last year 
what are your thoughts? I love this movie. I think I'm pretty much agreeing with, you with everything you're saying. I think it's like the mo- like uh, the epitome of 90s rom-com movies and like the way that they dress themselves in the setting in New York. I think it has everything going for it, especially the dynamic between Meg Ryan and um, Billy Crystal. I think they just hit it completely out of the park. It's like easily one of my favorite movies. They're so good. It subverts all the tropes. Again, that script is just incredible. I think it was Oscar nominated as well. It, like it, the fact that it goes up and down and up and down and the way it ends, it, I don't mm. want to spoil it too much, but I, right. I just think it, it's one, not even just rom-coms. I think it's one of the most brilliant scripts ever written. And if you get the chance to read it, I would highly suggest that you can find it on Google pretty easily. So I'll just um, plug that here. But the if other thing guys, to, If you guys know Raj, it's very surprising for him to watch a movie less than 10 times, especially a movie that he <laughs> likes yeah hearing him say that he's only seen it two times pretty much like it just completely caught me off guard i guess because it wasn't easily available i think when i watched it it was still on netflix and then it wasn't easily available for streaming so i haven't been able to find it you buy movies don't you like i do this is one one i don't have oh wow okay yeah so (laughs) this is this is one i need to pick up like i think i've probably just been waiting for like if it appears on criterion or something okay um so so hopefully we do get one of those but i guess we'll have to wait and see um the other thing i got to rewatch this week which um hit me even harder than when harry met sally i I rewatched your name um this was my third time seeing it i had seen it (laughs) in theaters and then I saw that, and then I rewatched it about a year after it came out, so like in 2017 and then 2018. Um, but for some reason, this particular rewatch really hit me very hard. Um, I, I'm going to stay pretty light on this because I don't want to get into plot details, but it's just it's cool to approach this film from a different perspective when you know where it's going. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives you a new appreciation for the emotional weight of the second half. Um, I think on the first watch, I was just so like astounded by the sort of twists and turns that it took. And then on the second watch, it was sort of more of a reprocessing of those emotions. And now that I've been away from it for two years, I was able to sit down and, and really process the proper emotional depth of what the two characters are going through. And I know I'm being very ba- vague and purposely so so because i just don't want to spoil this movie for anybody that hasn't seen it but i mean like there's a particular moment that happens on the top of like a mountain type um, Mm. type and it just like it gives me goosebumps every time i think about it i I haven't gotten it out of my mind since rewatching it i rewatched it like right after we hopped off the podcast last week Mm. um like for an entire week is this like the imagery the the story everything has just been kind of stuck in my mind so i just wanted to quickly uh shout out that movie again because it's more brilliant now this this is another one that is approaching like sort of my upper tier like top 25 top 30 movies of all time oh wow especially after this rewatch in particular like it it really hit me and has really stuck with me in a different way so i just wanted to give it a special mention real quick if you guys want to listen to our i think we kind of reviewed it when we were talking about our best of the decade i think i had it at my seventh or eighth or sixth i don't know which one it was but we talked a bit about that so if you want to know more go back to that episode but um considering how much you love this movie i don't know if you've seen five centimeters per second garden of wars or the one that most recently came out weathering with you with makoto shinkai um i I would like to know your thoughts on that before you get into the next uh next review no, I haven't seen any of them yet. Oh, I was wow. actually looking into seeing um, if Weathering With You was streaming anywhere, because I know it just hit theaters last year, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't able to find it streaming anywhere, and the other two, no, I haven't checked out either of those yet, okay. but I think they're, it's probably going to happen pretty soon now, since this is like top of mind for me. Okay. Um, so so don't be surprised if I review it like next week or the week <laughs> after, if I'm being completely honest with you. Um, but the, the third thing that I watched, and we can kind of use this as a transition into our featured segment, I finally got around to watching The Lodge. Um, okay. 
I'm not as high on it as you. I think oh. it's solid. I, I don't think it's bad, but I, I don't think it was quite as good as a lot of people are making it out to be. Um, okay. I do like that it feels very inspired by The Shining. Like, you know, it's isolation, it's snow, it's sort of this descent into madness, and that stuff I really liked. And I think it has some really genuinely brilliant horror moments. Um, like one one image that's in particular that sticks in my head is when she looks out the window and there's all the snow angels. I thought that, that like, stuff like that is really good. And I think the final 30 minutes or so are actually very great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it takes too long to get to the proper substance of the plot. And once it gets there, it tries to subvert our expectations one too many times. And I just felt like it was a bit more meandering than it could have been. And that too, it's only like an hour and 45 minutes. So it's not a long movie, mm-hmm. uh, but I just felt like it didn't come together as a collective whole the way I think it could have. It had brilliant things going for it. The performances all around are great. Um, in particular, the little girl who I was not familiar with. Um, she's going to be in Eternals as well. So yeah. she's one that you should definitely look out for. I was really, really impressed by um, the stuff that she's asked to do and how well she does it. Um, I liked it. I just wanted more out of it. Okay. Well, I mean, I already reviewed this movie a couple months, weeks ago. I don't know how long it was. I, it was like I, I've lost, I've lost track of time. It. It, it was <laughs> like your number one of the year when you saw it, right? It's, it still is. I love this movie. I think wow. You know, okay. they did a great job with this movie. I felt it felt very moody. I was, you know, pretty much, you know, pretty anxious when I was watching it. It made me a palm sweat. I think they did a good job with it. Kind of disappointed if you didn't like it as much as I did, but you know, I'm glad you gave it a chance because I've been telling you to watch it for the longest time now. But um, we'll use this as a segue to get into our featured segment this week, and I'll be leading the discussion because Raj is the horror note of of the both of us and we've had talked at length about how much he loves horror and how much it's influenced him as the way he views movies and like he like his top 10 of all time has like five horror movies i've seen on the list <laughs> and you know he's we've talked about it but we haven't got really into the discussion of why we we both of us like horror but not as much i, I don't like it as much as raj does i'm not as much of an expert as raj is but um we're just gonna go ahead and i'm gonna rattle off some questions for him you know how'd you come into horror were you scared as a kid because when i was watching horror as a kid i was completely petrified i had nightmares and i put horror off maybe until the conjuring came out and that's when i really got back into horror again because i wasn't as scared as as i was when i was a kid but i just want to know your experience with that yeah so i I guess also before i should like the way that the way that you talked about japanese animation and anime a few weeks ago when we talked about like princess mononoke and hayao miyazaki films Mm -hmm. like i i have a similar affinity for this genre and this genre is like you know, it's it's a pretty up and down genre, right? So I think people have pretty interesting relationship with horror, um, both positive and negative. But for myself, like, yeah, I, I was like a, I was a scaredy cat as a kid. I, I like, okay. you know, I couldn't sleep like without nightlight. I couldn't sleep by myself. I, I was terrified of everything, and not not just as a kid, like going into like middle school and stuff. I was terrified of everything, and and for whatever reason, you know, I decided I I need to like overcome my fears or whatever so i'm like i need to start watching horror movies so i sat down with my family and watched the exorcist which okay. was probably the dumbest decision i could have made like first horror film i sit down and watch is the exorcist and i made it about one fourth of the way through and i was like nope i'm out um <laughs> but i think what i think what's interesting about horror and i i like to sort of take the next step from that um I think horror as a genre, when it's done well, it sort of is a reflection upon oneself and it makes you sort of um, confront your fears and anxieties and um, what other, whatever other things might disturb you. Um, and I think that that's what the best horror does. And I think that that's why I've come to love the genre so much. Um, partially, I guess, because it also has that nostalgic connection to it. Um, when like when I did overcome those fears in like later middle school, or early high school, like all I was watching was horror films with my cousins and whatnot. And like, you know, it 
definitely has that nostalgic connection to it. But I think when horror is done well, um, it really it really holds a good and interesting uh, mirror up to to us as a society and us as people and sort of makes us grapple with our own demons and whatnot. And I think that that's, that's something that's difficult for film to do quite often. And, and I feel like horror is sort of made to do that. And when it's done well, it really, really hits home. Would you also say that, just bouncing off what you just said, you think it's an, a part of an emotional standpoint? Because when I think about movies, I don't think about how they emotionally affect them. I'm more thinking about the story or like the cinematography or like the craft aspects of the movie. But like when I'm thinking about other genres like drama, action, adventure, horror, animation, I think the one that affects me most is horror. Is that a reason why you like horror so much? Is it because it just digs into you in the way that other genres don't? I think that's an incredible point because um, this is a discussion I think we haven't really had properly on the podcast, but we, you have. Have certain, we, we certainly <laughs> had it like with one another. And it's just like the best way to experience film, I say, is to be as emo- like emotionally vulnerable as possible and to give yourself up to the experience as much as you humanly can. Okay. And, and when, yeah, when horror is sort of making you let your guard down and then confronting with some sort of greater fear i think it sort of hits you with a one-two punch and that speaks to exactly what you're saying i think where the emotions hit with you in a certain way and then the the sort of fear that the filmmakers are trying to evoke then sort of escalates and enhances those feelings okay i want to bounce back to what you offset just a couple of minutes ago you said that the first one you saw was the exorcist correct mm-hmm. and then like the, now i I think it's your number one movie of all time, isn't it? Or like at least your number one horror movie of all time? It's my number two horror movie of all time. It's in my top ten. My number one horror movie is, I guess I can spoil it because we'll, we'll talk about it eventually. But like, yeah, <laughs> uh, Scream is in my, is my okay. number four movie of all time. And then The Exorcist is like number seven. Okay. Okay. So then we'll just, we'll just segue into the next one because like I want I want you to know I want the, our listeners to know since you're the expert out of both of us who are your favorite movies your favorite movies your favorite directors who would you um, say is to look out for going in the future um, underseen horror movies and like how I think another bit of a, a tangent right now is if someone is too scared to watch a horror movie which one would you recommend for them to watch so they could like dip their toes into the genre. That's a good question, actually, and I'll start with that because one that's sort of top of mind that came up pretty recently is uh, Gretel and Hansel. Um, mm. This is one that we reviewed on the podcast, and we both are pretty um, high on it, I think. But why I think it's a good sort of entry point is because it really evokes the um, sort of atmospheric, moody element of the best horror. Um, you talk about what the, the atmosphere of the lodge definitely sort of evokes some of that. But what I talked about on our review was The Witch. Um, okay. But but it is a PG-13 horror film, so it gives you a good sense of what i think the best sort of slow burn horror is capable of doing but it's not sort of escalated to the point of violence and fear that it had to go for the r rating and and why like why i sort of say fear along with because like a lot of horror is known for like gore and sex and and Mm -hmm. violence and language and all that sort of stuff and that's oftentimes upset to the r rating um the Hansel or Gretel and Hansel doesn't have a whole lot of that. It does have a little bit of gore um, and a little bit of violence, but like there's no explicit language or, or nudity or anything like that. And I think it, it relies so much on the tone and the atmosphere the director builds. Um, and and one movie that comes to mind in relation to that is The Conjuring, another movie that has like very little blood, very little violence, very little language, any of that. But it got an R rating just because it was so terrifying to a lot mm-hmm. of people. And and that's where I think Gretel and Hansel walks that fine line where it can 
satisfy us as I think more um, nuanced horror fans, but it can also appeal to the younger horror fans if they can get over the sort of hump because a lot of younger horror viewers are so used to like the jump scares and that's sort of garbage horror in my opinion. Okay. Um, but yeah, like I guess should should I talk then about the directors and movies, or do you want to kind of focus more on on maybe like the jump scares t- side of horror first? I think we can actually. You know, you mentioned that you like The Shining, you like The Exorcist, you like Scream. You've yeah. talked about. Have you talked about Halloween yet on the podcast? I don't think I have. So yeah, like if I had to rank my top horror films of all time, it would it would be similar to what you just said. It would be um, Scream would be the first, then Exorcist, then Halloween, um, then The Shining, and then The Witch. That's probably okay. like my top five horror films. Um, the Conjuring might sub in that fifth for The Witch, but you know I kind of flip flop depending on the sort of mood that I'm in because they're very different horror films. Okay. Um, um, so, but yeah, like if you're like if you're looking for good like sort of horror like in the history of horror, the directors that I would certainly point like those are definitely the movies that I point you to because I obviously think those are the strongest movies and it gives you a wide range of sort of generations from like the 70s to present time. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the directors like Wes Craven obviously because he did the Scream films, but he has a lot of other great horror with like Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, John Carpenter. I'm not the biggest fan of the thing, <laughs> but a lot of people are, and I think the Halloween genre, well, it you know it does sort of lose a bit of quality later on. I think it's the most consistent of like the the long standing horror franchises from like friday 13th and or sorry uh slasher franchises with like friday 13th uh, nightmare on elm street and halloween i think halloween has like the most sort of fun entries later on um so john carpenter is always a good one to explore i think those are like sort of the two directors that i that when i think of horror those are the first two that come to mind um i guess another director alfred hitchcock who's horror adjacent i guess a lot of his stuff is thrillers but he obviously did psycho um but i think he's another good director to go to if you're looking for stuff that's um borrows a lot from horror and alfred hitchcock i think is often known as the master of suspense before he's known as a horror director but a lot of his stuff borrows from the horror genre and he obviously dipped his toe into horror as well so so it kind of walks that that fine line so what about what about people like sam mendez or james wan or like people who have who have or like um lee Wanell who have like that sort of background of horror but to kind of branch out into different genres would you recommend them as well as opposed to these other directors you just mentioned yeah, so I think that what's interesting, especially like when you mentioned James Wan and Lee Winnell, um, and this might be like a good time for us to maybe discuss like sort of the evolution of horror as well, mm-hmm. because I think that also might appeal to like different people's tastes in the genre. Because when you look back at like the 70s, um, like uh, let's let's even go farther back. Let's go to like the 30s. That's when you have like your sort of monster films, and that's when like you know your Draculas and your Frankenstein's. Those are sort of coming up, and then and then like as you get into like the 40s and 50s, a lot of what became popular was like giallo which is um like italian horror like italian body horror and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um so that that's sort of its own i think like category of horror and then you get into the 70s and that's when you get into the the beginning of a lot of the slasher craze like texas chainsaw halloween um uh, nightmare on elm street friday 13 all these movies are coming out in the 70s and i think Mm -hmm. it sort of ushered in a new wave of like low budget uh gritty gory horror films by um by very very talented directors who kind of stayed in a certain lane um a lot of those directors were mostly known for horror in their times um and that that continues a little bit into the 80s and 90s but i think a lot of what came later like into the 80s and 90s was more like sequels to those movies so it didn't really um it didn't really expand the genre as well as i would have liked um obviously and then you get scream in 96 and that's sort of a pivotal turning point for the horror genre because the horror genre had you know it had been 
muddled by sequels leading up to the mid 90s and then scream kevin williamson and west craven turned the genre on their head the, the the slasher genre but also the horror genre on its head and you know they kind of parody it but also make a pure horror film that has comedy in it so that's that's a pretty big turning point um for the genre in in the timeline of it all but then what you get following that is is a sort of muddled mess coming into the 2000s. And I think this is where you and I sort of, um, this is a lot of the stuff that we were watching growing up because it was around those ages that we were starting to get into these films. And, you know, you get into um, people trying to knock off stuff like Scream because it was so popular. Mm. But then you also get like the other side of the spectrum is like a lot of this sort of what I was just talking about, like the jump scare crap that is not effective horror, in my opinion. Oh, okay. um, I'm not saying that jump scares can't be effective horror. Um, and we'll talk like, because we started the conversation with James, uh, with James Wan and Lee Winnell, we'll get into them in a second. But um, it was just like, you know, it was like person walking down the hall and then a cat jumps in their face and a loud noise plays. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like that's why you and I, maybe certain horror films, especially in, in those times that we were growing up, we didn't really draw that connection to the genre. Um, and then, and then James Wan in particular is is the guy who really um, revamps horror to I think the status and caliber that it is today. Um, starting off with the Stepping Stone in Insidious, which came out like 2008, 2009, around that mm-hmm. time. And and I think what James Wan does so well, and why I think actually James Wan is maybe the most accessible horror director working, is because he he pulls a lot of what the great horror did from like you know he he pulls in the family drama aspect of like things like the exorcist but he also is good at building up the tension and delivering on a scare like somebody like a Wes craven does and he blends that into a sort of a perfect mix with stuff like insidious and then later on the conjuring and i feel like that is that's sort of where most people i think find their appeal in horror is movies like that because it's not that dumb jump scare stuff that we got so used to in the early 2000s it's elevating that to satisfying jump scares that only elevate a um a family drama at its core and that's why i think like somebody like james wan is really sort of the modern master of horror more than anybody else working today like i love other horror directors like like robert eggers and mike flanagan and ari aster but i think James Wan is sort of the the master of the genre right now because he understands that that part of it so well. And then yeah, he he obviously works with Lee Winnell, another another great director um, and writer who um, within the genre is doing similar things, but I think in a more um, or on a different platform with stuff like The Invisible Man and Upgrade. Um, I think those guys are definitely more accessible than your guys like Robert Eggers and Ari Aster. Okay, so let me ask you: back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we had a lot of people who, or a lot of directors, and a lot of movies that kind of centered themselves around these movie monsters that are like Mike Myers, Chucky, Freddy Krueger, Jason. I just wanted to know your opinion on that sort of way people kind of desensitize themselves into the horror genre, and if kind of how they it it kind of made them think of how horror should be, and how that's it could be detrimental or it could be a positive or you know considering on how your sort of opinion on it it is. But um for me personally, I think the first one I saw when I was a kid was Chucky. I was completely fucking petrified of Chucky. I thought that <laughs> he was gonna kill me when I was taking a shower, so I didn't want to close my eyes when I was showering. But um and then I got then I watched The Ring as a kid, and another ring is like I took I had a little like like those this little small white TV in my room. It had a VHS player like 
into it. Like I, that's how old we are. We have VHS players into our TVs. I took it out of my room and put it into the ghost room across the house because I was fucking, you know, terrified of these um, movie monsters that most people know when they're talking about horror movies. So, do you have a regard for these movie monsters? Do you have respect for them? Is, do they have a place within, like, you know, the pantheon of the horror movie genre, or, like the different aspects of the horror movie? Like, you know, in regards to, like, the types of horror movies there are out there? Yeah, so I think, um, and, it, you know, it is pretty interesting when you mention people like Mike Myers and, and not Mike Myers, that's the comedian that played Shrek, <laughs> Michael Myers and, Mike and Myers. Chucky yeah. and um, Freddy Krueger. Um, yeah, I I definitely agree. Well, like, I guess my perspective on that, and this is even something that I was raised, like, in my household, like, my parents would say stuff like, you know, those, like, the slasher films in particular. I think that's where we associate a lot of these um, these killers, right? Because they are they are coming from that sort of slasher genre. And, um, and I think when we were younger, we, we were sort of taken away or taken aback from that stuff because it was quote unquote gory, quote unquote bloody. It was like body horror in a way. Um, and I think that that turns off younger viewers and especially I think parents because they don't want their kids to see um, people getting hacked up and whatnot. But I think what's um, really cool about those kind of films is, yeah, it is sort of hearkening back to the movie monsters of like the 30s and 40s, but it's making them, other than the case of like uh, Chucky, they are in some sort of human form, right? Even um, Freddy Krueger, although he is in your dreams, he is still a human who is just burned and killed and is now haunting you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's actually a far more effective method for horror because it, it sort of supplants it in a very true reality and that's why i think i like the halloween movie so much mm-hmm. is because i know michael myers is a sort of beast in the way that he can't be killed but it is grounded in a certain reality the sort of stalker creeping up on on uh babysitters and killing them while they're they're in their homes like that's something that you know we hear true to life stories of stuff that happens like that and i think that you know again that's that's when horror addresses the sort of um the sort of real life fears that we have and makes us let down our guard and uh, try to embrace and approach that in a very personal way. But I, I guess what I, I am definitely positive on those, but I know that you are not as big of a fan of movies like Halloween and Scream as I am. So I'm curious, like, how does that approach for you? <laughs> well, I think it just depends on how I, I like my per, sort of perception of horror as a genre, because, you know, I kind of like <clears throat> the best way to put it is, the Michael Myers movies kind of set the tone for how horror should be going forward up until now. And we're going to get back into that point in, in a second. But, um, you know, like you have teenagers being stupid, they're having sex, they're doing drugs, they're drinking alcohol, they're being they're doing stupid mistakes. And they get into these situations where like the killer of the movie gets them because they're just being stupid. So like if you have sex in the movie, you die like something that Scream kind of. Uh, talks about in a very meta way i think that's why i appreciate scream a lot because it kind of talks about the horror genre in a way that it's kind of satirical but it has its own story supplanted into it but um i think you know when we're talking about horror i'm thinking back in the past when i was like a kid and a teenager my expectations were you know you have this monster you have these uh teenagers they look like fucking male Abercrombie male models and female models into the movie. Like they have shitty acting, they have jump scares, they have a lot of gore, they have a lot of blood. So I think that's why I kind of saw Halloween in that way because of how much I didn't like those tropes within the horror genre. But I didn't realize that the reason that um, those tropes were so popular was because of how well it was done in the Halloween movies. But um, you know, so yeah. going forward, you know, we have like that turn from 
being like you know these really shitty gory like remakes after remakes after remakes you know sequels and you know poorly made horror movies with these consistently um you know these consistent tropes throughout each movie and then we have movies like going into like you know as you said like insidious con the conjuring the witch and going so on and so forth and now there's a sort of term now where people call they kind of differentiate between regular horror and then they have like the term now that they call elevated horror which to me i think it's a bit elitist because Mm -hmm. it's kind of saying that you know this horror is better than that horror because of these certain tropes or these certain themes but like it's all part of the same genre they all play off of each other and then you know you couldn't really have the movies that you have now without those movies that we had in the past so i just wanted to know your opinion on the term elevated horror and if it's a good thing or a bad thing or if you just don't have an indifference to that sort of term yeah I absolutely hate it. <laughs> um, okay. And and I think this goes back to the point that I was just making about James Wan being the ma- modern master of horror before anybody else, because the stuff that he makes is sort of traditional in the sense that, like I said, it, it relies a lot on jump scares, but it's done well. Um, the quote unquote elevated horror is these things like Hereditary and The Witch and The Lodge, even where it's like quiet, slowly paced movies that are sort of more focused on the characters. And I think that the reason those got like branded with this elevated horror concept or term Mm -hmm. is because they were um they they didn't rely on those tropes so i think a lot of like general movie viewers and even some critics to an extent didn't find them quite as quote-unquote scary because they weren't screaming in the theater at the screen and i think that's why a lot of these got branded with that term because while you're not like jumping and grabbing onto the person next to you in the movie theater um these are still the kind of movies that I think stick with you in a far deeper and more unsettling way. Like Hereditary was your number one movie of last two years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. 2017, 2018, something like that. But uh, either way, (laughs) it was your number one movie of the year that it came out. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's, uh, yeah, I, I think it certainly discounts that, that sort of type of horror because when you call it elevated horror you're kind of separating it from the other horror right and it's like it's not fair to grade the two on two separate scales because they are of one piece because they are of the same genre and while they might approach the genre from a different path that doesn't mean that we're gonna make them their own separate entities i don't think it's fair to either of the different types of horror because i think that i think the stuff like the conjuring is more mass appeal it's certainly more mass appeal than something like hereditary and then or even the witch like the witch is not mass appeal at all um but i think that to to separate the two or to discount one or the other is not fair because they both have their grades within them yeah, because most recently there's a movie that came out that was called Ready or Not, and that was not, not a movie that you really call an uh, an elevated horror movie because it's more of a slashery kind of comedic movie, but it mm-hmm. does have its elements in horror. Mm-hmm. So, and, and there's a movie that you do you really did enjoy when it came out, but then you also have movies like The Witch, which is a very you know slow burn and it's a very uh, moody, it's very atmospheric and it kind of digs into you. It's kind of like uh, it doesn't really have those jump scares that you're pretty much exactly. uh, expected of the horror yeah. genre but it's all within the same sphere because they all draw upon each other for the same um you know the, the same emotion being fear so it's kind exactly. of like saying that you know <laughs> one's better than the other because of this and it's like i, I don't know like, it seems very elitist to me that this term came out mm-hmm. and that's a, a, a term that i really 
talk about or kind of how I describe when I'm talking about horror movies. I just say, yeah. hey, this is a good movie because of this. This is a good movie because of that. And I just mm-hmm. talk about the aspects of the movie itself rather than the genre as a whole when I'm talking about horror that, movies. That's how we should approach it, right? Because it, right. You, know, you don't go into other genres saying this is elevated drama, genre, right, this right. is elevated comedy. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's not how we approach it. We just say it's comedy. It's comedy. It's funny. It might not be, you know, you might find the Jackass movies funny because it's people jumping off roofs and trying to kill themselves. Or you might find a movie like The Big Sick funny because it has a lot of like real human personal humor in it. Um, those are both comedy movies. And we're not saying that one is elevated comedy and one is not elevated comedy, even though Jackass is clearly not elevated comedy, right? Like we're not we're not sort of putting that line in the sand between those two films. Why is it fair to do those do that in horror? Um, in the same, but I in think- the same breath, you're kind of shitting on the views of other people who are watching this movie that actually like them and you're just saying, hey, you're tastes are shit because they don't have this these same themes of these other movies that i like exactly and that's why i kind of like lumped a little bit of like critic because i think that critics are the ones that sort of ran with the term and i feel like they are the ones that look down on the quote-unquote jump scare horror more often than general viewers and i think general viewers go to the movies to scary movies to be scared from jump scares and i think there's nothing wrong with either of the two mm-hmm. um as long as it's executed well and yeah then than to say, yeah, exactly what you're saying. To to say it one or the other is to shit on the other type of, of horror, and I just don't think it's fair to do that. But I, I guess an extension of that, I'm curious because, like, I know, um, I know you're, we just talked about your your, your fandom of, of a movie like Hereditary. Is mm-hmm. there a certain type of horror between like those two genres, especially of this more recent stuff that has come out that appeals to you more? I guess you could say it is the elevated horror movies, but I don't want to use that term. But like, the reason being is because when I'm when I'm watching these movies, I want to feel like mm-hmm. it's kind of like a despair sort of sense like it's, it's always there with me rather than it just be like me just watching the movie and then getting a jump scare in front of me I would, i'd rather it be a movie that's kind of the, the that emotion is always there that fear that tension that um emotion of just you know utter whatever it is i'm feeling at that moment when i'm watching the movie i like it for it to be carried out throughout and then being ele- not <laughs> not elevated but kind of built upon throughout the entire movie so i think when I am talking about horror movies, I do like movies like The Thing. I love The Thing. I, I adore The Thing. But um, I also like the movies like The Exorcist or Ready or Not or Hansel and Gretel or The Witch. I just like the genre as a whole. But when I'm talking about the ones I like the most, like the ones that kind of that just like dig into you and kind of make me sweat when I'm watching the movie. No, I, I think that that's completely fair, and that that makes 100% sense to me. And that I'm on the same page as you 100%. Because yeah, I, I love movies like The Witch, and I love movies like The Conjuring. And I don't think I've I've never separated the two in my head, so I wouldn't right, expect right. anybody else to either. So, so then let me ask you: You talked about the progression of horror being like those Frankenstein, Dracula, the Mummy movies of like the 30s and 40s. Then we talk about the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. with the slash movies and the the movie monsters, and we move into now with like this term sort of the elevated horror movies with like James Wan and Ari Aster and Robert Eggers. I just want to know: Is the trajectory of horror is it optimistic for you? Are you pessimistic? Are you just like just taking it as as it comes you just go with go with the full kind of guy when it comes to this genre are you just like looking forward to a certain aspect of the genre as a whole this is something that i've given a lot of thought to like over the past few years especially because myself being somebody who started off being terrified of horror movies then started watching a lot of horror films but wasn't all that attached to a lot of them and then finding myself now in a sort of 
golden age of horror. I think it's fair to say that we're in a golden age of horror. Okay. And I think a lot of horror fan, fans don't like to say that because they always say good horror has been around forever. And mm -hmm. good horror has been around for forever, but you really had to dig for it for a certain stretch of years. I think now a lot of the horror that comes out, I think more often than not, like especially like even if you go back to like 2010, like 10 years ago, we were like, is this movie actually going to be good? Probably not, but we're going to go see it anyways. Nowadays, you're expecting those kind of movies, like every horror movie that comes out, you're expecting it to have some sort of clout to it, especially because of the way the trends have been going. So, so more often than not, I am optimistic about horror. And I think that that's there. The, I've been thinking about this a lot because I think it's attributed to two separate things. First and foremost, it's because of the, the auteur filmmakers that we have today. Um, you know, your Ari Aster's, your Robert Eggers, your Mike Flanagan's, your James Wan's, your, your Lee Winnell's. These guys are really revamping the genre in a really cool way because, like we've just said, they're, they're rooting a lot of the horror that they're trying to put out there in humanity, in personal issues, in family drama, and then they're sort of extending the horror from that. They are, these are all filmmakers that understand that. And then they're sort of influencing the filmmakers, the horror filmmakers that are going to be coming in the years down the road. And they're sort of setting the stage now for these filmmakers that are going to be making these similar horror films in 10 years to be influenced by their own stuff. So I think okay. that that's one great aspect of where horror is now. But I think also the studio system um, has found a way to to capitalize on that and therefore give us quality stuff. And it sort of started with Blumhouse where you say, I'm going to give you a million dollars. It's not a lot of money to make a movie, but I'm going to let you do whatever you want because it's not a massive financial risk. It's not a $300 million movie like the Avengers. And so these filmmakers are able to go into the genre use their own creative vision without um, a lot of studio interference and give us that vision. And then sort of A24 has obviously picked up on that. That was their their sort of forte going um, throughout, but then they started to do it more with horror. And now even stuff like uh, New Line and Warner Brothers, who have made like The Conjurings and The It's, they've invested more money and are doing like bigger studio budget stuff like The Conjuring and It movies and Annabelle's. Um, but it's still not like a lot of money. They're still not like hundred million dollar movies and they're still grossing a lot of money. So I think that these, um, these studio heads now understand that horror isn't a place where you can invest a lump of money. That's not a whole lot of money. You can give the filmmakers the creative freedom to do what they want. And we have now great creative filmmakers who will do great stuff with that freedom. And they're going to continue to process and produce great stuff that will not only be successful in a critical sense, but also successful in a financial sense. Because like the the Conjuring movies, for example, like there's, I think, five Conjuring movies that have been made on a combined budget of like $100 million or maybe $150 million, and they've grossed over a billion dollars. Like that's insane, right? Right. I think that's the reason why they make so many horror movies, because it's, they cost so little. And if it's really popular, they make a bunch of them because they don't exactly. cost that much to make. But um, before we get into the final point of this uh, discussion, I want to just rattle off some parts of like some genres of the of the genre, you know, sub sub genres of the of horror. And I just want to know your takes on it. You know, is, is it a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? Sure. Um, is it something that you avoid when you watch horror movies? So I'm just going to go ahead and say, um, how do you like gore movies? Gore movies? Gore. Like, you know, like Saw movies and like movies yeah, like, sure. like Intestines and all that. Yeah, like, I don't tend to like those ones as much. Um, I try to avoid gore just because I'm not – I'm a bit squeamish when I watch stuff. But I do like like the original Saw. I think more often than not, those films are actually the ones that are lesser quality because they're more sort of uh, focused on grossing out the viewers. But okay. they're, that's not to say that there aren't good ones in, in the lot. Okay, found footage? 
found footage I like, but I think it sort of got um, hampered by the the paranormal activity of it all. Um, I, I, I think that there are some good ones in there and some bad ones in there. You just have to write, find the right story and you can't just use it as like we were just saying, like a super cheap method of making films and just try to capitalize on the finances that way. You've got to have a good story to go along with it. Okay, and zombie movies? Zombie movies I love. Train to Busan, uh, Wreck, The Crazies. I, I love zombie movies. Okay, and then demon movies? Demon movies are more often than not, I guess, demon, and I pair that a little bit with supernatural as well, like paranormal ghosts and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, those are those tend to be my favorites. Okay, um, alien movies? Uh, hit or miss. Hit or miss more because we don't have a lot of, like, I think, great alien horror i think like a lot of the alien like the alien franchise for example i consider that more an action franchise than a horror franchise um but but i think that we just need more of it i don't think there's enough of it out there but i tend to be i guess more skewed positive okay um schlocky satire movies like uh kind of kind of the scream movies kind of like the scary movies Mm -hmm. uh scream franchise is the greatest horror franchise without a doubt i think all four movies in the franchise are great Okay. Um, but otherwise, like the scary movies, I, I don't really care for those. If I'm being completely honest with you. Okay. Um, thriller movies like the ones with Alfred Hitchcock and like movies that don't really tend to be skewered towards like supernatural. Sure. Those those tend to be the best, I think, in most general people's opinion because it's um, again, it's it's drawing on real life influences, real life situations, and it's digging into fears of things that are surrounding us on a day to day basis. Okay, that's a good segue then. Social horror. Social like, horror, like get out us and all that. Yeah, those those are very good and very important right now. But I think it's also we saw, especially with Get Out, where you can really, really hit the nail on that commentary stuff that we talked about at the beginning of this discussion and make society reflect on itself in a terrifying way, not just because you're putting fears in front of them, like ghosts and monsters and stuff like that, but you're really making them look at themselves in the mirror and be like, why are we this way as a society? So I think that the social horror, like uh, Jordan Peele is sort of setting the stage for that. I think we haven't had a whole lot of that um, yet, but yeah, we obviously have like Candyman coming out and, and whatnot. I think that the future is very bright for that type of horror. All right, putting it on a spot. One underseen horror movie and one horror movie that you think is overrated. Okay, one or uh, I'll draw on two that I've already said. I think the thing is overrated, and I'm definitely in the minority with that. Okay. Um, I, I just never, you know, I, I think people really draw to the practical effects, and that's mm-hmm. something that I tend to love, but I just didn't care for it. And the thing, I think um, I am more comfortable with John Carpenter doing stuff related to Halloween than I am with him doing stuff related to the thing. Um, okay. One underseen one is another one that I mentioned here, Train to Busan. Um, that's easily available on Netflix. I think it's one of the best zombie movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think it's, you know, we we've talked about like Asian horror, like J horror, um, Korean horror. Those, those, those people know what they're doing when it comes to horror films. Um, obviously the grudge and the ring are inspired by Juwon and and Ringu from, from Japan, but also Korean horror is spectacular. You, you mentioned one to me last week, which I still haven't watched yet. The wailing, but I'm Mm -hmm. going to get around to that sooner rather than later. But then, yeah, like train to Busan. I think that that's, you know, people shy away from it because it's foreign language, but there's some really, really great stuff. And I guess that's another like J horror in particular, like, if you can go find out like something like audition like it's really great really tough to watch really disturbing but it's it's excellent stuff okay i think that's all i had all the questions i had for you at least you want to have any closing thoughts before we get out of here 
Uh, no, I, I think we kind of covered all our bases, but yeah, I, I am very optimistic about horror and not just in like a film aspect of it. Like obviously my, one of my favorite things, not just in the horror genre and not just like in television or in movies, but like one of my favorite things that I've consumed in the past five years, is the haunting of Hill house. And right. we obviously have the haunting of Bly Manor coming out and I'm getting, I'm Dr. Sleep's uh, director cut is on HBO now. So I'm going to watch that when we get off the recording. Um, like I, I love what Mike Flanagan's done with the genre. I'm really excited to see what he's going to do. And I just think that there's so many, there's so much research that you can do into the genre because of the new wave of filmmakers that are revamping what we're so used to. Mm. Um, and I just, I'm, I'm really excited for the genre, but I guess I'll, I'll close by asking you, do you have any other sort of thoughts on, on the genre, your relationship with it and whatnot that you wanted to discuss here? Um, I don't know. I think you pretty much said everything. It was pretty comprehensive. But um, sure. going into horror, I just want to say that, you know, these are just movies. They're not going to hurt you. They're not going to come out of the <laughs> screen and choke you out and take your, out your intestines or whatever. I mean, if, you're, if you are scared of horror movies, I think you should just give them a chance. You know, talk to me or Raj. We can give you some recommendations. Um, but I think because like, I think you're just like um, kind of, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice. If you're not watching this genre because it has some of the best movies within the entire you know library of film history so mm -hmm. if you're not watching them it kind of like you know you're, you're just hampering yourself and you're not really enjoying film as a whole so if you're scared of them kind of dip your toes watch these movies that we just talked about if you want more recommendations talk to us on our social medias mm -hmm. but um you know my favorites being the conjuring the witch i love the thing uh the wailing one of my favorites uh did i say hereditary already mm-hmm Hereditary again. <laughs> and I think I might rewatch The Lighthouse because I told Raj about this, but when I was watching The Witch for the first time, I saw it at home on demand and I told myself that if I saw this movie in the movie theater, I wouldn't like it as much because the way that Robert Eggers writes is very period specific and is the way that the actors kind of act them out is very period specific so sometimes i didn't know what they were saying so when i saw it with the subtitles i think i appreciated it more so i think i'm gonna rewatch the lighthouse it's on amazon i'm watching it with subtitles and i think i'll like it more the first as opposed to the first time i saw it which i did i loved it when the first time i saw it but i think i'll like it more when i see it with subtitles that that's another one that i need to revisit um i did kind of think of something that i can use as a bit of a closing thought i guess i'll just say that it, you know there's there's never been a better time to get into horror and it's because there is so many different not not just because there's so many great filmmakers but all these filmmakers are doing their own things like all mm -hmm. these films and tvs and everything they're doing are so different from one another there's something out there for everybody if you like the quote-unquote elevated slower paced more uh rooted in character horror you, there is stuff like the witch and hereditary and um, midsummer. even midsummer yeah and yeah. the lighthouse yeah that that stuff is definitely out there for you but if you're looking for stuff that will get you out of your seat because there's a you know there's somebody's hair gets pulled or their leg gets pulled and like they get dragged into the darkness like there's great stuff like that out there like the stuff that we've been mentioning here on this podcast, I know we've been talking about like the same stuff over and over again, like <laughs> Conjuring and Insidious, but it's, it's really, really great. But I guess I'll also say that there are a lot of other underseen horror. Like if you go on Shudder, which is a streaming service, there's a lot of great uh, foreign and horror on there, for example. So I just say like, now is the best time to get into horror. The library is there. Everybody that wants something out of horror has something they can get out of horror. So I'll just close out with that.
Okay, great. Well, I think I'll leave you to the closing because you do the closing better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sure. Um, so yeah, like that, that'll bring us to a close for this episode of Talking Movies. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Um, as we have been doing the past few weeks, we're going to point you to our show notes again um, to find resources on Black Lives Matter. Uh, in addition, as uh, in, in addition to movies that you can watch, we'll put some resources there where you can donate and sign petitions and, and vote and whatnot. Um, so be sure to check those out. Um, as always, please be sure to rate review and subscribe to the podcast share it with your friends and family and like i mentioned at the top of the episode we're going to be trying out a different format this week we're going to see how it works and we'll keep you guys posted on that moving forward Um, but thank you again for joining us and we will be back here i guess in a couple days